Hi there. Welcome to Season 3 of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. Today's guest is Carol Motika. I'm really moved by everything Carol has been through and who she's created herself to be in the face of it. She's out there advocating for all of us. I so appreciate you, Carol. She's the mother of four sons, and she currently resides in Connecticut with her life partner, Michael. She's a co-founder of Bloom, a colorectal cancer patient access space. She's an ambassador with Fight CRC, as well as the Global Colon Cancer Association. She's a survivor model for the Colon Club, and her story and advocacy work have been published in many local, regional, and national media outlets. Carol has been cancer-free for three years. Carol, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. How are you? I'm well. I'm excited to be here, excited to do this with you. So, yeah. Me too, me too. What were you diagnosed with and how old were you? I was diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancer and I was 42, coming up on five years. It was April 9th, 2016. April 9th, you were diagnosed with stage four? For rectal cancer on my birthday. Colorectal. I, I had colon cancer. On your birthday? Yeah, April 9th, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just ruined, I just ruined your birthday. You ruined my birthday, girl. <laughs> wow. <laughs> colorectal cancer. So it wasn't rectal. Will you distinguish between the two? Right. Well, so colorectal cancer is a GI cancer, but they, they kind of put it together. So there's the colon side, which is the upper portion and then there's the rectal part which is the the rectum down to the anus which you know is where everything comes out (laughs) when you poop um and we're not trying to talk about poop so there you go um but they they put them up all together because there are differences in the treatment but they're relatively similar and so they lump them all together as colorectal cancer yeah yeah i was surprised when i found out that if you have colon cancer they can't give you radiation because the colon moves so freely they don't know where it's going to be that day but with rectal cancer, like I had, I got plenty of radiation. They just triangulate yep. it with the tattoos and then go to town. So you were diagnosed yep. with stage four colorectal at age 42. That stage four, that's a hell of a thing to be told. <laughs> I mean, game changer. You know, I mean, in an instant, you are living this relatively perfect life. Um, your kids are growing up and graduating from high school and college and you know, you're doing the, the mom thing and, and life is good. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I had went to my son's play the night before, Ghost, the musical, literally. Mm. And that day, the morning of, I had taken my nephew um, for, we did, we used to do anti-days. So I just, we'd spend the whole day together doing arts and crafts or whatever he wanted to do. And that day we'd planted sunflowers all over my kitchen floor. And I'd had a wonder, we'd had a wonderful day together and I literally, in an instant, had this pain in my shoulder after we went hiking. And I thought, oh, it's, you know, I just have a really excruciating pain that just flared up Mm -hmm. and literally was on my knees. And my son was taking me to the emergency room. And for those that don't know me, I can tell you, I am the last person to go to the emergency room. I mean, it it has to be a near-death experience for me to to go to the ER. And, And then your life changes on it it like stops and then you, you your life is completely altered in a second life as you know it has has literally ended i know that sounds scary but 
I mean, looking back, there's great points of it and, you know, of it happening like that. But you don't know that right away. You're just thrown into a a realm of disbelief, I think, and utter chaos. And Yeah. So, so he takes you to the ER because your shoulder hurts. Yeah. And how did that turn into a stage four colorectal cancer diagnosis? <laughs> Fortunately, I had friends that worked in the ER, you know, and they understood that I wasn't a, a wimp and that something was probably pretty, pretty seriously going on. They did some lab work, thought it was my gallbladder at first and lab work came back funky, which led, you know, to more tests. And then an ultrasound showed I had spots on my liver. They weren't sure what they were. And so that led to a CT scan. And then ultimately I was literally diagnosed in the ER with cancer and the ER doctor said, you know, this isn't my specialty. You're going to have to see an oncologist for your questions. And I said, who's an oncologist? Right. You know, I was that, you know, naive. I didn't even understand. I mean, I knew medical professionals, but I didn't know what that implication meant that I had to see an oncologist to, to get more information. So, yeah, you know, I remember when I started using the term oncologist, I didn't even know what that meant. I think I was getting chemo and I started, I heard someone <laughs> say oncologist, like, why would you know about these things if cancer hasn't been in your life? So what did you have some, uh, what's it called? Is it called a uh, referred pain or deferred pain? Differentiated pain. So every time, so my liver got had so many tumors that it was became irritated enough for it to say, I guess in essence, this is simple language because it was so confusing for me, but in, they used the terminology at that point, basically your liver it was yelling, you know, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, um, and I need some attention. And so every time I took a breath, it would rub against my diaphragm and it would cause differentiated pain up into my shoulder, which I thought was something that I had just, I just slipped or, you know, right. you know, when you're hiking and, tr and you know, climbing, you just, think you hit, hurt something look at me I'm like doing the body part I'm moving my body like you can see me doing that but <laughs> um, but yeah ultimately that's what sent me to the ER was differentiated pain so did you immediately see an oncologist or was it like at night and no one was around like what happened then it was Sunday and I well funny I probably pretty much had a full-blown panic attack I I'm a type a person like when somebody throws something like that I mean, like something's out of whack. I'm a planner. I'd have figured it out right away. I want to know. I want answers like immediately, which is irrational. That's <laughs> kind of how I roll sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I literally, you know, laid in bed and cried because I was just distraught, honestly. I mean, I think in the, and I, I sit in that and accept it now. Back then, I didn't understand how, you know, I mean, just life just turned upside down. And so, like, I think that's a natural response, fight or flight, right? And yep. at that point, it was flight, get me out of here. I went off the ship. The next day, my uh, PCP was a friend of mine, and I called him and I said, I'm coming in right now. And he was like, okay. And <laughs> I'd called him Sunday night, you know, and told him, and he had looked at my scans. And my sister's a, an NP too, and she looked at my scans and and I would, I asked her, I said, what is, what is this? Tell me what, tell me what it looks like. And she was like, if this is your scan, it's effed up. And I knew she wouldn't, she wouldn't sugarcoat it. So I knew I was in pretty big peril. Wow. And so I, came, I went in, yeah. And Scott was wonderful. And he got me in for a colonoscopy the next day. So, and I saw an oncologist, literally Scott said, this is, this is serious. 
I, I would seek out, you know, very, very high quality care at that point. And so I, I made a couple calls and one of the calls was to the, to the Cleveland Clinic and I, somebody had referred me to a, a specific person, Dr. Tracy Hall. She did colon, colorectal cancer surgeries. And so I was fortunate enough to call her and I, I kind of hit the first like closed door at that point, even like that far ahead, um, early, that early in my story they told me when I called that she wasn't seeing patients and um, that you know she was just seeing the patients that she had and I think she was getting ready to transition you know to something else and so I was like oh no and so the nurse was was really gracious and she said well tell me a little bit about your case and what's going on and she said I'll present it to to Dr. Hall and if she wants to see you I'll I'll call you back and I thought oh okay there you go and I was just you know so discouraged and Ultimately, she called me back. It was a Tuesday, and she said she'd like to see you on Thursday. And I said, oh, great, because I had some other appointments already lined up. And I said, that fits well into next week. And she said, no, I, no, she wants to see you tomorrow. And I was like, what? <laughs> really, that's when the blessings began, you know, was that some purposeful event was happening that I got to see her right away and full steam ahead from there. So I saw an oncologist, you know, within the first week that I was diagnosed. So it was really fortunate. Yeah, really fortunate. That's that's quick. That's really quick. Yeah. And especially after being told she's not seeing any new patients because the oncologist I see down at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, it's not uncommon for me to meet people in the waiting room who say, you know, that they had to wait to see her or like they were lucky to get in because she wasn't accepting patients, right? Like, sadly, there's a demand to see these oncologists. Yeah. yeah and at that point, I didn't understand that. There, there was no value to that for me. I didn't you know, because it was was a whole new game for me. I didn't understand the value of having that happen that fast. You know, now looking back, I realize, wow, that's not common. Um, But then I was like, oh, thank heaven she can see me right away. You know, and a plan was in action. I had a port and met with the team in Cleveland the following Monday. So I was diagnosed Sunday of one week. I literally had my port surgery seven days later. (laughs) That Hmm. fast. And so... so... How, what was the treatment protocol? How did it begin? So it began, right? Uh, So I was really fortunate. I met with the team from Cleveland and I was able to do my chemotherapy at a closer hospital. So I didn't have to go all the way to Cleveland for my treatments because, you know, there's, there's some value in not having to travel for the medicine that you can, you know, equally get or obtain at any other, you know, outlet, if you will. So I met with an oncologist at a local space and she conferred with the team from Cleveland. So it worked out really great. They administered everything and she was the, you know, the administration part of it. So she made sure that she followed the regime that they, that they wanted. And we just started out with standard of care. Basically where I was, the place that I was, was inoperable. So yeah. the first oncologist, she just, you know, when we went, you know, you go for the, for the chemotherapy meeting where they tell you all about chemotherapy and what's going to happen in the, in the short video, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and the, and the binder that's four inches thick. Right. (laughs) Here's your video, watch it for 30 minutes and be prepared for everything that's going to happen in the next, you know, years of your life. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you. So she, so she was very frank and I wanted it. I wanted to know, because I wanted to know what I was up against. And she said, you know, six months, if I didn't do treatment and a year, if I did treatment again, life goes into an utter spiral because 
you know, you're 42 years old. What? Um, I, I just remembering, what? Right. I, I'm in a time warp. <laughs> what? What? Am I in a third dimension? Um, truly, I just didn't. I couldn't embrace what. What in the hell? Excuse my language. Was going on. From yesterday, I was fine, and now I'm being told that I'm gonna live for six months. And I, I remember telling her, "Well, you don't put a time stamp on my my foot. Only, only God does that for me." And so. I don't believe you. And I said, I'm going to prove you wrong. So we started chemotherapy. We, I did full Fox Fury, which is a three drug regime to start because I was inoperable. And I said, you know what? If I'm going to be inoperable, I'm going to hit it guns blazing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just how I work. I wasn't going to try different things. Let's just go to the go to the big guns. Um, and I did, which was really rough. I did eight rounds and boy. Yeah, so you did full, I've done full Fox and I've done full Fury, but you did both of them combined. I mean, yeah. full Fox made me feel pretty sick, but then I started getting the neuropathy. So my doc quickly jumped to full Fury. The second time I was diagnosed, the doc didn't jump so quick. She, she kind of just altered the recipe a little bit, brought some things down, but the full Fury that like that laid me out. I, he jumped me to that real quick in my six month treatment and I was pretty much on the couch from that point forward. That stuff was really rough. Yeah. And you did really both rough. of them. Wow. I almost lost my eyelids. I got the, the rash the, from the ear in a tea can and oddly got it on my eyelids. It didn't come out anywhere else. And she, the oncologist was like, I've never seen it on, your, on somebody's eyelids before. They, had to, they were worried that I was going to lose my eyelids. Um, I had to see an ophthalmologist and you know, the eye doctors to make sure, because your eyelids are so sensitive anyways. And so I had this huge rash and it was, it was rough, but I got through it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, what would one even do if they lost their eyelids? Like, I don't, holy cow. Thank heaven it didn't happen. I don't even know. No. Yeah. 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 So how, how long was your treatment with the, um, full Fox Furry? We started in April. I ended in September and I did eight, eight full treatments of full Fox Fury. Every couple of weeks. Every two weeks. All right. Yeah. And then, what were the results? How'd that work out? I was really, really fortunate. I was one of the few that was fortunate enough to go from inoperable at that beginner space, beginning space, to I qualified for uh, resection. My doctors couldn't believe it. Some of the tumors had just disappeared totally. Wow. Some of the tumors shrunk by 70%. I was really lucky that it was contained in my liver, so they didn't have any other organs to worry about at that point. So I was a candidate. I became from inoperable to uh, be a candidate to have my tumors taken out of my colon and of my liver. Yay, me. (laughs) Yeah. Wowee. So you had liver resection and was it a colon resection or a rectum resection so mine was a colon and i did it in three different surgeries so they took my colon they ablated my right lobe and then they went in and took out my right lobe took the tumors off my left lobe and put in an hai pump so it was in three stages so it started in october and it ended in january 
So I had October surgery, a December surgery, and a January surgery. And what's an HAI pump? An HAI pump is a hepatic artery infusion pump. I so in my, in my case, we did the HAI pump to do treatment after my tumors were removed to debulk whatever would be left floating around. Instead of giving me systemic chemo that could make me sicker after surgery, they decided to take this approach because I didn't have any tumor burden anywhere else and I only had one lymph node that was positive. They put the pump in and they gave me chemotherapy directly to my liver. No other parts of my body. Just kept me healthier, kept my organs healthier. Yeah, you're the only person I've met who's also had one of those. I called it the hepatic artery pump, but the HAI yeah, infusion pump. Lucky you. I had systemic chemo. Well, not lucky. What a thing to say. But you know, if I, I feel like you're lucky because I had it's the... It's true, though, yeah. I had systemic chemotherapy, I had, you know, treatment, and then two weeks later I'd have another, and then there would be a two-week period, and I would then have blood work, and if it was good... I would travel down to New York. I also worked in tandem, you know, with a, mm. my local oncologist and then sure. Dr. Kemeny down in the city. Then I would get, if my blood work came back good, I'd go down to the city and she would give me a dose of the hepatic artery chemotherapy. I was always fascinated by that thing. The fact that it's amazing. It, there's no batteries. It just works on what uh, body temperature and atmospheric mm-hmm. pressure. Yep. And it's always pumping. Yep. And if you fly in a small plane at high elevations, you have to let <laughs> them know so they can make adjustments. You're just like, what? Yeah, I did. I flew a couple times, flew out to, uh, did some hiking in Zion and went to California, did some hiking in Yosemite. And mm. we had to put extra glycerin in it so mm. that it would be more sustainable to, you know, to the flight. So and it yeah. all worked out. <laughs> yeah, that's so extra glycerin. So that was like on your off week when there wasn't chemo in it. They were just, instead of going saline, they put in some glycerin to thicken it, to slow down the rate at which it pumps, right? So they, they put saline in it during my treatment. And then when I went into longer extended spaces for treatment, they would put glycerin in it so that it would last longer. The chemo? Because it's... No, the saline didn't last long enough for the trips. So yes. when I'd go on a trip, they put glycerin, yeah, in it to to make it last longer because it was thicker. Yep, right. Yep. So that way it would pump out more slowly, and you wouldn't higher elevation. You won't empty it out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you had the two surgeries, and then you had the post-surgery hepatic artery infusion pump. Yeah, chemo. Yeah. Chemo. Yeah. And, and then it gets better. <laughs> yes. So continue. It keeps getting better. <laughs> so what happened next? You had your hepatic artery infusion chemotherapy. And yeah. that, that, I mean, and for those of you who are listening, in case we didn't describe it perfectly, they put a pump in your abdomen and it then mm-hmm. goes right into your hepatic artery uh, mm-hmm. that goes into your liver. And the cool right. thing about the pump is it's like a port but it's the size of a hockey puck but they also inject into it like you get injected into a port and they put this chemo in there and it pumps it for a week and it goes in directly into your liver so it doesn't fill your whole system and one of the sweet things about that is like 
I don't know, but you tell me. For for me, it was far less difficult to navigate. The systemic chemo is a real bitch, but this hepatic artery pump, the chemo, it wasn't that bad. It was far. No, the I would I would a hundred percent agree with what you said, and I would add to that the the value in it was just that I wouldn't have any symptoms, and it, it was relatively you know relatively symptom free. The difference is it's a, a condensed version of of full fox or excuse me, five FU. Yeah. So it's called F U D R. And I, I I like to t- I used to tell people it's like condensed milk or it's like, you know, something that you have in a condensed form. And then your body, your liver is this amazing tool that knows what it needs, you know, knows how much it needs to combat what it's up against. And so the FUDR works in a way that it'll, the liver, it'll go into the liver and it'll throw out everything it doesn't need. And so literally I had no symptoms. I climbed mountains. I took kids on a, I was the youth director at my church and I took kids on a mission trip and we dug post holes when I had the pump in, you know, so there was so much value in just the, the life, you know, and being able to be healthy while while still treating, mm. you know, the disease. Yeah, that's wonderful. How did uh, how did you re- I'm curious how you responded to the pumping in your abdomen cuz for me, one of the cool things for me was that being a performer, I was actually doing gigs like on the off weeks from my chemo. Like maybe once a month or so. I think we we're playing this one bar like once a month and you know, I was doing this like outlaw honky tonk country music tunes that you know i would write have an upright bass player a fiddler a guitar mandolin whatever just you know just blowing the roof off the place so much fun but my guitar would bounce off not bounce but just be rubbing on the pump on the nipple right so like my skin was getting really tender so i actually had to i took a a b band which pregnant women wear when they're pants no longer mm-hmm. fit it's just elastic yeah. right so i was already <laughs> using that at the time to go over my colostomy because it was uh, i wanted to flatten it so it just wouldn't be poking out my abdomen right keeps it secure yeah, yeah so then like i took a b-band and i had a friend stitch into it some egg carton foam that would go on my abdomen between the pump and my guitar because like play because wow. yeah, playing these gigs they just lifted me up. Like, you know, I would be, you know, I'd be feeling miserable and sick, but I'm looking forward to like next week's gig, the band. Yeah. We're going to go blow the roof off this bar. So it really inspired me. And, but then in order to do it, I had to like wear this thing in my abdomen to keep my guitar. It was just from, from bumping into it. It was, it was, it was uh, yeah. there were times That's I'd awesome. be driving and I'd start getting sore and I'd realize that my belt buckle was pushing into this <laughs> hockey puck size pump in my abdomen. <laughs> And no, you must have had some experiences like, yeah. Well, I, I tell you, I'm little. I'm literally 5'2", and at that point, I weighed 110 pounds. So you can imagine the size of that pump with this little person. <laughs> <laughs> so, But I was really fortunate. Mine was placed really well. Um, and I was, I'll be honest with you, I was very proud of it because I felt like I could show people that cancer doesn't stop people you know you you can either choose to let it stop you or you can choose to great to greet it and to welcome what it's giving you and i was able to welcome that that was helping me sustain my life and so i did all the things that i normally did and if somebody asked me about it i just tell them what was going on i wore my bikini at the lake and i was proud of it i 
dug post holes with it and was proud of it. I didn't let it stop me, but I, yeah. I welcomed it as part of my body and knew that it was doing the job it needed to do. And and I'm very frank and honest about my story. So for me, that was that it kind of started with with that, with being aware that this is this is what it is and it's saving me. And so I'm OK with it and I accept it. I love it. That was your approach to it, because I also I mean, I had my colostomy pouch by then. I had my colostomy pouch on the left, my hepatic artery pump on the right, my port mm-hmm. on the top right, and I bumped into someone at the lake. And I can't remember how we met, but I was with my son. I think we were fishing, and she told me she'd been diagnosed with cancer. And her story is, you know, she's actually uh, the, the first episode of the podcast ever, Sharon oh, Nelson. Wow. And she said, she's like, she goes, you have no idea. She goes, you just lifted up your shirt and you showed me the hepatic artery pump, your pouch, mm-hmm. the port, your huge scar. She was like, and you showed me that like you can live your life while you're going through this. You don't, I mean, yeah. cause she had just been diagnosed, you know, it's just like, and mm-hmm. you're the same way. It's like someone says, oh, what's that? Oh, that's my uh, hepatic artery pump. It's chemotherapy. They're like, what? Like, yeah, I'm living my life. Like yeah. sometimes, like when I did the systemic chemo, like the days that followed, I was laid out. And by the time I got to the end, every two weeks, the majority, you know, first it was like, you know, three days I'm laid out, then four, then five, and eventually 12 days. And eventually, you know, there's 13, you know, maybe one good day yeah. before I go back in. But yeah. you're able but to. But I, I just, to, to your point, I think that, that we have to debunk those myths. And I think that that's why, that why we have to be brave enough. And for those of us that are comfortable being brave enough, we can stand up for maybe some of those people that aren't brave enough and we can show them that it's okay. Um, and the other thing we can do is, is like you said, show people that we're surviving through this. You know, even though this is happening to us, we're brave enough to stand up, speak out and say, it's okay to see scars. Scars are our story and we need to share stories. Stories are how we we continue to grow and, you know, and nurture each other. So we need to know our, each other's stories. Yeah, absolutely. And it took me time before I would reveal the pouch. I used to like uh, take the pouch off, put on this sticky stuff, then put a large Band-Aid over the stoma. The stoma is where the large intestine exits the abdomen. I didn't want to wear the pouch in front of anybody because I was just so ashamed because what's a pouch? It's where you poop. That's gross. No, we don't talk in this culture. We don't talk about the way we poop unless we're making right. jokes. We don't do it, right. you know, and now, you know, I'm just at a point in my life where if I go to a beach and I swim or if I'm fishing with friends and I just, or people I don't even know, say we take a charter. If I take my shirt off because it's hot, there's my pouch. I'm just like, yeah, it's part of my life. It's part of who I am. It's why I'm here mm-hmm. right now, you know, and it takes time to get there for some of us. It did for me with that yeah. particular part of it. But, you know, for people, if, if you're listening right now, like, yeah. you know, yeah, there can be a, a, what, a learning curve, a, uh, you know, a little timeline where it's, you got to get comfortable with it. But once you do, it's wonderful. You're like, yeah, it's, it's who I am. And, and if a person yeah. is uncomfortable with it, like I really get they're uncomfortable with it. I don't have to share their discomfort. I can be compassionate to their discomfort, you know. In the beginning, I actually wasn't. I would just be like, oh, whatever, you know. But then I learned like, no, oh, like, hey, people are you know, a little uncomfortable with it. Like, that's okay. Yeah. You just don't have to join to them. Me, <laughs> right. To me, that's a great conversation pieces if someone is concerned and you know to me if if someone sees me showing my well I don't have the pump anymore but when I was showing it um and if someone was uncomfortable I was able to start a great conversation and I always said if I can impact one person 
you know, to go, you know, ask questions and, and, you know, to their family about history and, you know, all those things. That's the purpose of that. And so, so for me, part of being honest and, and sharing was that with the intention that I could, I could, that what I'm going through could help save someone else from having to go through it. So yes. I was okay with that. hundred percent. I love that. Yeah. So you said there's more though. So you had this pump. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> Something happened, huh? <laughs> yeah. So that great pump was very wonderful. I would choose it a hundred times over. Um, I took eight treatments with it which is a lot, which is a huge success. A lot of people don't even get through two treatments of it. I was fortunate enough to get through eight treatments of it. At that point, it was a new novel therapy. I mean, even having it four years ago was, it, you know, now it's, you know, changed so much and they've learned so much about dosages and things like that. But at that point it was new and we, we really didn't manage the dosage as well. And so ultimately in October of 2017, my liver just was done. I had a liver aneurysm in the parking lot of the Cleveland Clinic. That's after we placed drains and I went through, my goodness, I can't even tell you. There's 19 total. <laughs> we did ERCPs and cholangiograms and, and ultimately my when my liver failed, we had to do an angiogram to go in and stop the bleeding. I was fortunate that I was literally in the Cleveland Clinic parking lot leaving. I'd, I was in the hospital in 2017 more than I was at home. I'm, I'm confident oh in that statement. <laughs> and my mom, bless my mom's heart, she was there with me that week. And we were, I had these biliary drains because we knew I was in liver failure. We were trying to um, maintain my liver and kind of get it along if we could and heal it. But it just wasn't going the right direction. But I had been in the hospital for a week and they gave me the green light to go ahead and go home. My mom was, was there to, to take me home. And we headed out and I literally got one block from the hospital and the drain started bleeding out and my liver aneurysm right in the parking lot. So my mom literally did a U-turn, <laughs> went back into the hospital. Bless my mom's heart. She, set, she was 72. She rips me out of the car, throws her keys at the valet. I'm like, mom, you don't know if that's a valet or not. She said, I don't care. She was no, so cute. I don't care. She was the best. I mean, she's the best mom, but in that she, her mama bear came out big time. She, the valet came and said, I can take her up to the floor. And my mom said, absolutely not. I will take her. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom is not a physically active person. And so you can picture my mom and I, I in the wheelchair with, bleeding everywhere mm. and my mom is running me through the Cleveland clinic and took me up to the GI floor and because of my mom's quick wit or quick ability to to you know respond to what was going on yeah. we didn't go to the emergency room which would have waylaid the process and I probably would have died but she took me right to the GI floor and the doctors were there like vampires you know like they were like where did you come from and I was like I just left and I'm bleeding everywhere. And the doctors were like, poof, <laughs> the big dog. Oh so, goodness. you know, you're in trouble when all the heads of the surgical unit show up in a, in a second. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, I got a chance to call my kids and tell them I love them. And I literally was in surgery in 30 minutes. I mean, oh it my. was that wow. fast. Wow. So, that, yeah. Yeah, that had to be pretty scary. 
Yeah, it was, it was, it was scary. My doctors were there holding my hands. I felt confident, Mm -hmm. but I'll tell you, I don't think that I had been, I'd felt the sensation of this could not turn out well until that point. I'd always felt confident in my, my journey and what was happening and the confident of the confidence of the doctors. But I felt fear and concern in them at that point that I had not felt before. Yeah. And so I knew I was in a I was in a, a concerning position at that point. And I was right. And when I woke up from the angiogram, you know, they were very very clear that they didn't have anything else to do. Mm. It was Mm. Kind of out of options at that point, except. Well, let me pause you for a moment. Can I pause you? <laughs> yeah, so tell, totally. every, tell everybody what a liver aneurysm is, and then you had an angiogram. Tell them what that is, because it was a. So right. So what happens when you have a lot of infection or um, swelling or you know whatever in your liver is the liver is very vascular, so it's full of blood. It's, pushing blood everywhere all the time. It's receiving blood and it's pushing out blood all the time. And what happens is sometimes the walls will get weak or even the the vascular structure of the the wall of the liver will get weak mm-hmm. and it kind of causes a bulge. I, I I guess I would I would use that example of like let's just say it's like a bulge and finally that bulge gets so thin that it ruptures. The wall of the liver will rupture because it's thin so much from the, you know, from the inflammation. Yeah. And so it'll cause your liver to bleed out. There's not a lot you can do. If, if, if it happens right away, you're, you just, you, you really bleed out. You don't have, if you don't have access to, to medical. So uh, going back to my story, I don't understand really, I can't put my, my thumb on why that happened at the Cleveland Clinic parking lot. But I know that if I would have been anywhere else, I wouldn't have survived because they wouldn't have been able to to go in and cauterize. And what that right, is, yeah, is yeah. the angiogram goes through your groin and they go into your, your main artery and they cauterize. They'll go in and they can cauterize the liver. And that's what they did to, in essence, fix it temporarily. They went in and cauterized the spaces that were rupturing. Okay, so you had the liver aneurysm <laughs> and this heroic go. angel... Your mom, my mom, charges you right to the doctors. They Guns do, blazing. Yeah, they they do the angiogram. They stop the bleed. Yep. And then they say to you, "Well, we've stopped the bleeding. We've gotten you here. You're stable now. But you know, I was I was in liver failure. So that was a late stage of liver failure when your liver will just you know it's tired. It's it's exhausted. It can't do too much more. Um, and so they said, you know, um, there's not a whole lot we can do, but we've been working on this and studying this research out of Norway, and we've not done it before, but we'd like to try it. It's called living donor transplant. And I was like, what? Of course, I didn't understand that you could actually divide a liver and that you don't need all of your liver. Thank God for that. He's given us, he's given us extra parts that we can spare. I have a lot of parts missing now that I don't need, <laughs> including my liver. <laughs> I have a new liver. Um, and so we we pursued a living donor liver transplant. It was my last option. I was pretty much out of options. Wowee. So mm. that's phenomenal. So many questions to ask, but let me start <laughs> with, 
Where does one find a person who's willing to donate <laughs> part of their liver? That's a good question. Right. So I honestly don't believe that you find the donor. I think that the donor, I think it happens. I think fate or whatever mm -hmm. you believe in, I think looking back, I think that's how it happens. That's just the destiny part of it. I think that that's really what, I can't equate it any other way. Yes, you can give uh, a portion of your liver to someone else and they can take a portion of your liver and live in it, it, what's called hypertrophy and grows to accommodate the size it needs to be to live in your body and operate your body. And then their leftover organ that they have can sustain them. Where do you find a living donor? That's a good question. And um, I first asked my, do my doctors if I should put an ad on Facebook or something. And <laughs> they didn't know that was such a great idea. Um, but ultimately, that was the conundrum I was in was, here's what we can do at the hospital, at the Cleveland Clinic, we could do this. But you have to find your own donor. So they could do the surgery if I had to produce a person that was willing to give me a body part. That's a big deal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, hypertrophy. Now, isn't that when the liver expands to the size it needs to be? Yes. That's what you said. Yeah. When I had my liver resected, and again, with the cauterization, like when they cut out part of the liver, they cauterize it. Yeah. So it doesn't continue to bleed. And then in what is it, Carol? Like in 30 days, your liver grows to 90% of the size it needs to be to accommodate yeah. your body. And then like for the remaining year, like the other 10%, it grows. Mm -hmm. Amazing stuff. I had a roommate. He'd already had his surgery, but his liver grew in a direction that was now pushing on his diaphragm. And they were trying oh, to wow. figure out how to help him breathe freely. Because the, mm. the, they explained to me, yeah, the liver, or he explained to me, the liver doesn't like grow in the direction where you cut it out. It just kind of grows wherever it feels like it. And his did not grow yeah. in, in a way that worked <laughs> so well for him. Oh, my goodness. When, the, when, when radiology sees my CT scans, they always come in and ask me questions. Are you missing this? Do you have this? Your liver looks like this. And I'm like, mm-hmm. It's Dr. Asejo's fault. <laughs> always blame, always blame him. But yeah, it's quite a quite an interesting concoction in there. So. Yeah. So how did you find, or how did the person find you? I mean, do people go on yeah. lists and say, oh, "I'll be a liver donor"? Like, why not? <laughs> I want to do something good yeah. for the world. I mean, it's it's a heck of a. I know, you know it's a big commitment. So there are lists and that's fantastic for you know people to know that you can put your name on a list you can be an organ donor a lot of people don't know that you can be a living organ donor too not just a deceased organ donor um in the cases of kidneys and livers and some other you know small bowel spaces you can actually be a donor and still sustain your own life it's one of the most heroic things someone has someone does for another person is to give them life yeah. so i i like to promote that as far as my in my own instance you know, I, I didn't know where to start. I lived in a very small community and they did a news article and, you know, they published a story of my need. And then my pastor at my church, I was the youth director at my church for quite some time. And so the church, the congregation knew of what was going on and, you know, that I was ill. So he offered to put a note in the bulletin 
you know, the Sunday bulletin at church. And yeah. I kind of giggled and I said, you know, I don't know if that's something that you should do in church, go looking for body parts. You know, it was just really peculiar. <laughs> but ultimately, we, I had a lot of people reach out and offer to be a donor, which is one thing to offer, to have people offer um, so graciously. It really makes you feel loved. But beyond that, they still have to qualify as a donor, you know, so you don't, you may, maybe you have 50 people that offer, but you don't know if there'll be even one that would qualify. Well, Jason qualified. He was a congregation member of mine. Now is now he and his wife are dear friends of of mine. They're my liver family. Oh my gosh. He knew that day in church that he'd seen the announcement that he was, he was supposed to do. He was supposed to do that, that that Mm. was what he was called to do. So Wow. It wasn't about me for Jason. It was that he was he was called to do that for for whoever that person was. It was just he felt like that was the call from God that day that he was supposed to do that. So I was the lucky recipient, mm. which is pretty cool because I like to tell people I'm not the story. I'm one little piece of this really amazing story of so many things. You know, Carol, it's... Phenomenal. Let's say if we time traveled back before I was diagnosed and I knew that someone in the congregation of my church needed part of someone's liver. I'm not there, so I can't say, but it's like, I, I don't know if I would say yes. I think that would sound too scary to me. You know, being so ignorant of such things, like for a human being to say, Yes, if I qualify as a match, I'm going to give this person a part of my liver. I mean, I have friends, I will honor their privacy and not say their names, but I've known this gal since like I was in elementary school mm-hmm. and I've known her cur- I've known her husband since high school. And when he needed a kidney, she was able to donate hers. They were a match. And I've cried so many times telling this story. It's, it's just so beautiful. I would imagine like you and Jason must have, there's a connection that two of you have, like you share his liver. That's like, that's yeah. beautiful. That's so beautiful. I'm really fortunate. You know, I will say this. I, I, I knew, I know Jason is an amazing human, but beyond Jason being an amazing human, his wife, his Stephanie, wife. who's one of my best friends now, I mean, she was like, you know, she's superhuman because who says to their spouse, hey, I'm going to give this strange woman my liver and you and the two kids are just going to be okay with it because they have a little boy and a little girl and everything is going to be fine. To me, that's the ultimate faith Mm -hmm. is that you just trust that this is going to happen. And she is the most amazing woman uh, uh, on the universe for for being able to like equip herself to, to handle all that. I mean, he gets credit for doing what he did, but she doesn't get credit and she is amazing for the sacrifice. You know, she had to manage the house and the kids and, you know, everything while he and I were going through this. It's a great testimony. And, you know, Jason and I are, are, are good friends. And I'm so, I'm so honored and humbled to be part of their family now, too. You know, his mom and his dad, they, they treat me like I'm one of the siblings now. You know, I'm, his, his, I'm, his, I'm a sister because I have Jason's organ. Oh, um, so we're genetically matched now. We like to, you know, joke around and say that, you know, now we're, you know, we, we're connected forever. So. You're liver twins. Oh, my goodness. Liver twins. Yeah. But I'm, look, it could be different. Like, I could not know my donor at all. It's very, you know, it's very private. So they could have chose right. to do this without me knowing. And I'm very 
fortunate to, you know, have this beautiful story of, of friendship and, you know, all the other adjectives that go along with it. Yeah, for Stephanie to agree to it, it's like mm-hmm. that's a huge act of generosity and compassion because yeah. surgeries don't necessarily go well. A person can have surgery, they can go really badly. Like you take and his did it did didn't it. go well? Is that right? Yeah, he he. They took out his liver and they they started my. It's a fourteen hour surgery, so oh it's gosh. not a, it's not like it's just a two hour pro- procedure. It's a this is a full day process, and they had he had his liver removed. They put him back together, and I was still in surgery, and so she's fighting for me and 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 the family. We're all there. They're all there, and all of a sudden they come in and take Jason back to surgery because he's bleeding. And they had missed some, you know, some things. So they had to go back in, which is common, you know, mm-hmm. it's not uncommon. So they had to go back in and do two surgeries on him. So yeah, I mean, she's she's one tough cookie. Yeah, and then he's got to do the recovery. It's a big deal when they open up your abdomen. That's not a small surgery. Yeah. No, no. It's absolutely beautiful. They sound like lovely yeah. people. They're amazing. Oh my goodness. I don't even have words that can compensate. No. How valuable no. they are to no. me, and I think that that's okay. You know, I don't think you can necessarily put words into how you feel. And I think that's something special that we share is that we understand how equally appreciative we, we are for the whole process. The lump, in my th- the lump in my throat and the tears in my eyes are far more true than any words can uh, express. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your recovery like? How did they... Uh how did the surgery go for you? I was lucky. I, I'm, that's one of the things with transplant is it's a very small subset of people that qualify to do this. And I was super healthy before. Well, mine is cancer. Mm-hmm. I was super healthy. I was still super healthy even with cancer. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, when I got diagnosed, I was like, people are like people would say, well, once you got sick and... I think to myself or say to my wife or to good friends, if they felt like it's comfortable, I could say it. Like, I'm like, I'm actually not sick. My body's healthy. There's cancer growing in my body and it's real dangerous, but I'm not sick. Like I'm, I'm healthy. I'm, I'm for some reason, my body didn't turn around the cancer growth like it does in so many other bodies. Right. And we can talk about that because that's a really important point, but it's true. I mean, you know, your body is healthy. Um, you can have cancer growing in your body, be healthy. And that's the place where I was, you know, I, I felt great. I was doing active things. I was, so I I had myself in a good position and, and let's face it. Cancer is a game of chess or Russian roulette, Mm. (laughs) Uh, maybe a little combination of both. So I was a perfect candidate for what they wanted to do because everything was, was good. I was active. I ate well. Nutrition was important to me. I had an active healthy lifestyle that I led. My age was a factor, certainly. All of those things encompassed the idea of how you would do in transplant and then how you would heal after transplant. So, you know, I did well in both of those scenarios. They want you to prepare for a three-month stay in Cleveland after you have a transplant. So we had arranged, you know, to have care there. They didn't, we lived in a very rural community. And so with that, they didn't want me to be 
three hours from Cleveland if something would happen. For that instance, because this was new research, they wanted me, and because of my history with aneurysms and things like that, they didn't want me to be far away. So we um, were very fortunate to be able to have used one of our resources, which was the American Cancer Association has a Hope Lodge in Cleveland. And because I had cancer, I qualified to stay there through the duration of my recovery uh, while I was still being monitored in Cleveland. And then Jason and his family were able to stay at a place right beside us called the Transplant House, uh, which is the same thing that they do for a living donor. It was really great. We were very fortunate to have been cared for that way. And our church actually did a fundraiser which offset all the costs that oh were associated gosh. with having to stay. Yeah, so we, you know, we came out of it with you know pretty much zero that we owed because of the generosity of people. And and we both did well. We both were dismissed. Jason was dismissed from Cleveland, I think 2 weeks after transplant and I was dismissed from Cleveland um a month and a week after transplant. So we, you know, we really did well. So they wanted you to do three months, but you ended up only doing five weeks, huh? Because you were doing so well. Yeah. There was no reason to keep me. So. Yeah, so let's do a recap here. You uh, have some shoulder pain <laughs> after playing with one of your uh, nephews. Yeah, nephew? Yeah, my nephew. That day you're diagnosed with stage four colon cancer metastasized to your liver. You go through your chemotherapy. You have your surgery. They do the uh, post-surgery hepatic artery chemotherapy. And after that, they did what? They did the surgery. <laughs> and then at some point, your liver's like, I got nothing. I can't hold myself together. It just starts bleeding out the yeah. aneurysm. And so they stop the bleed and tell you there's not a whole lot more we can do except... If you can find a living donor, we can give you a liver transplant. Like you're told once that you have six months to live. Then you're told like your liver can't do its job anymore. Like you just keep being told like. I've literally used seven of my lives. Yeah. yeah so tw <laughs> twice you're told that we can't do much for you. And yeah, I'd say you use seven of your lives. Yeah, good. I'm glad you didn't use all nine. So. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Can you believe this? All? This is the truth. This really happens. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. It's... I pinch myself because I'm like, no way. That couldn't have happened. <laughs> yeah. And so when was the liver transplant? April 23rd, 2018. That, so that was, was two years worth. It'll be three years in about a month. Yeah. Five years since diagnosis. And three years since transplant. So, mm. yeah. I have a lot of birthdays. I can only think of two. There's more than two. You got your liver birthday. Oh, my actual birthday. And that one too. And then my, my diagnosis day, I call that my birthday because I don't like to celebrate it as a bad day anymore. I like to take that as a good experience because I've, and I can elaborate on this later, but I've learned so much and I've grown so much as a person. Yeah. I feel like that was the beginning of a new story. So I kind of consider it a birthday as yeah. a, in essence. And let's, then let's talk about that. Let's talk about that transplant. now. The transplant birthday. Let's talk about that now. You just you just yeah. like opened up Aww. a space in my heart. Like you really moved me. Like I've I'm really clear, Carol, that like the first time I got diagnosed you know that was that was an invitation for me to 
to be the real me, to stop pretending. As a man, I didn't feel I was masculine enough. As a human being, I didn't feel like I was powerful as other powerful people. I didn't feel like I achieved what a proper adult would achieve. All these insecurities. Then I got diagnosed with cancer and I was like, you don't, you have all these fears about who you are. What if you just be you and stop pretending to be something you're not? And then mm -hmm. I did a little bit and it felt like a lot. But then the second diagnosis, it was like, I just got the daylight smacked out of me. Like, yeah. okay, now are you listening? <laughs> yeah. And I'm grateful for who I've become. And I don't know if I would have become that Otherwise, maybe I would have, who knows, but I can't say that because I only know this life yeah. that I lived and I'm grateful for it, but I've never looked at the day. Like I have not come from a space of love when I look at the day I was diagnosed. I'm like, that was a bad day. And in what you just shared, it had me, in what you just shared, it reflected back to me who I'm being about my experience. Like, yeah, you're grateful who, for who you've become, Bert. You're grateful that you were diagnosed. I was actually thankful at one point after my first diagnosis that I had gotten diagnosed with cancer. But there's that one little piece I left out, which is the day. The, you know, the yeah. following day when I was laying on my couch, crying and screaming at God, like, why is this happening to me? I'm not yeah. one of those people. Yeah. And because of you right now, I'm bringing that into my life. Like that's a special day. That's a beautiful day. Yeah. I, I, you you're know, amazing. Oh, thank you. I'm not really amazing. But oh, you are. I, my mom, you know, my mom a long time ago told me that you don't have room. You have to bring love into your heart. If you bring in hate or just, you know, discouragement into your heart, there won't be enough room for love. Um, and I'm not going to say that I'm, I'm, perfectly done that all my life. It's, you know, certainly have been a hot mess in, in, in many instances. For all of us. But I will tell you, one of the biggest parts of my survivorship was taking grief, which is okay, recognizing it's okay, mm -hmm. sitting in it, and allowing grief to, to be active in my life, and then turning that grief into hopefulness and um, being able to have gratitude and um, use the gratitude to recognize all of the value that has given you. Like, you know, to your point, what wonderful things cancer has taught me. But I think that if you, if you don't acknowledge the pain, then we, we can't ever get to that space where we can um, allow it to be in our life in a great, in a grateful way. And I wasn't about to not be authentic anymore because like you said i think cancer opened up a new a new life for me and uh, and on that day it really i think it was god saying hey now we got stuff to do and you know now you know there are a lot of times in our life we say we're being authentic and we are are trying to be authentic and that's fantastic and i encourage everybody it's hard to be authentic and i think we are authentic where we want to be and then the other places we say well we'll work on that right. um but being authentic sometimes means when you've not been authentic it means it might hurt to be authentic and of course we don't like hurt and we don't like to hurt people and so cancer has taught me that it's okay to be authentic even if you have to do cleanup for the part where you weren't authentic <laughs> Which oftentimes happens. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, I love what you just said. I don't 
distinguish much between love and grief. I don't know if there is a difference. You know, like yeah. when you're grieving something, it's a, a profound expression of love. Mm-hmm. And it's being present to the loss. It's being present to all that is so now. And mm-hmm. having the ability and the willingness to sit with it mm-hmm. and to let it all come up. Yeah. And cancer taught me that. Definitely taught yeah, me how me too. To, me too. to be acceptive and and to be okay with being authentically broken and authentically okay and authentically healthy. Um, because there are those things. No one does it right all the time. No one does grief right because there is no right. We all get to do grief the way we do grief. We all get to love the way we all, yeah. want, you know, while we, how we feel, you know, love fits into our life. So I had a heart that was hard for me. I had to make, I had to make some big changes, but I was okay with it because I had a new life and I knew that I couldn't waste it. It was, it was time to put my big girl pants on and make some changes. And I did. Some people like yeah. you, some people don't. And that's why we have this beautiful world that we live in. And I just didn't recognize that. Uh, again, you know, going back to that, I like to talk about a lot about sitting with, with things. And, you know, you have to, like, just be in it and be present. And I figure that out. Cancer gave me that gift. Thank you, Cancer. Um, it's on the good Cancer list. Um, and truly, mm-hmm. I, you know, going through that and going into the depths of not recognizing myself has really made me come out on the other end even healthier i thought you know i thought i had all these preconceived ideas of what was gonna what it was gonna look like for my kids and for myself and for my family and in many instances i can tell you that my relationships are better and the ones that um suffered that was okay because they were meant to to suffer and, and I'm okay. I, I accept that now. Yeah. My kids and I, I thought, oh, it's, you know, I thought this was going to be hard. This is going to be a struggle. And it certainly was. I, I mean, I'm not going to say it went without, you know, a, a problem at all. Certainly they were concerned and confused and upset. Um, but our relationships now are even closer just because I am who I am. I'm their mom. They love me. They understand what I'm, I've been through. I understand where they're at. And our relationships crazy as it sounds are even better than they were in the past i'm sure it sounds wonderful it has it become real it's like it like a lot of illusions get shattered when you get diagnosed with cancer and you come through it and you and your kids are all like wow like we're really fortunate that we are all still here yeah but i don't want to say that without you know i i would put the the connotation on it to that it goes without saying, you know, I'm an advocate of therapy and of, Mm -hmm. you know, self-care and, you know, it, it, it didn't happen without opportunities to engage in, you know, in therapies and advice and, you know, listening and learning about each other. So that's really important. It sounds like, you know, you're, well, I'll speak for myself and you tell me if it resonates with you. I was diagnosed both times and each time, like it just kind of kicked me into reality. Like, starting to be authentic and genuine and then as time went on like it was like a huge boost like a rocket you know like a huge booster just you know sent launching me off into orbit and then what followed was like doing the detail work like doing the little like okay like there's you know some therapy here with this relationship what helps some some conversation and some growth here like i got kicked into being authentic but now it's like 
all the areas where it's like, you know, now you're doing the fine tuning, maybe. Yeah. And taking a look at yourself is rough. Yeah, it's <laughs> not easy. It's a rough job, but it feels good in the end. Yeah. This is what I think about myself. Ouch. Okay. And, and if I want to not do that, I got to be with that and let that in. And that takes something. Yeah. And like, you know, and like you said, to, to really share your story and to be authentic in this, even the space of cancer, you really have to be um, resilient to accepting who you are and, and what cancer has given you or not. And, and I do think too, that a lot of that process is how you look at life in general. I'm a fighter, you know, I'm determined. I'm a type A girl. Don't tell me no. Cause if you tell me no, I'm going to say, well, you know, what can I do to, to get you to say yes? So I think that, you know, those are some of those, I guess, interwoven things into your character that you're, you're taught. I lost my dad when I was five. He was killed in a car accident, oh. which kind of goes into our hereditary history. But, you, you know, I had to learn resilience very early and I had to learn, you know, my mom was, you know, she had a, a five-year-old and a, a one-and-a-half-year-old when my dad was killed tragically. Mm. And um, a month later, I had open-heart surgery because I had holes in my heart. So I, my mom taught me resilience at a young age, how, you know, how to love life and how to look at the positive things. And I think that those were things that looking back now that I have been through cancer, what she did in setting that tone with me at an early age transcended to being able to cope with the negative connotations that cancer gave me and turn them into positive affirmations of life. And that's really important. And I, at least I feel that that's important in the journey is, you know, it sucks. It definitely sucks. But how can you take that sucky stuff and find something positive and then sit in that positive part of it? You know, and again, it's, I'm speaking now and it's easy for me to say it. And I, I work on it all the time. Yeah. But does it happen every single day? Absolutely not. I, I go hide in a corner and cry some days, mm -hmm. and that's okay. I, I accept that, and I sit there with it. And then I remind myself that tomorrow's the next day, and I get up and I put my big girl pants on again, and I go at it hard. So, yeah, I mean, but I think it's, you know, the process of greeting cancer where it is is, is how you look at it. It has some elements to how you look at life, too. And, and like I said before, definitely my mom instilled that sense of resilience after my dad you know passed away when yeah. i was young. wow so. that's really powerful yeah. and we can yeah i can still be the same jerk i used to be i just tend <laughs> to i bounce back much more quickly i stay there <laughs> for far shorter a time sometimes it's only a Less moment time. Or, right. <laughs> or, or my belief that i have nothing to offer and, and just, you know, that just doesn't last as long as it used to right Oh, I can be a big pain in the neck. I grant it and welcome it because I am. But better than that, you know, I, I'm not as much as I am. <laughs> so. <laughs> and then part of that goes into what you said earlier about like, you know, self-care isn't necessarily selfish. Or another way to put it, selfish isn't necessarily inconsiderate or, or you know, or, or lacking. It's simply like caring for self. Like yeah. for some of us, like, oh, what yeah. a concept. <laughs> It is because, you know, from an early age, we're taught as we're developing that we take care of people, right? Right. And that we can't care about ourselves before we care about others, even from biblical references. And so it's, it's hard for us to reboot our brain and say, I'm important. I have a debilitating illness and I matter. And everything else matters too, but I matter too. Even that little sentence, you know, 
I matter, everyone else matters. Yeah. It's hard to process with people. So work in progress. We're all work in progress. There you go. So <laughs> since being diagnosed yeah. and recovering and being a living transplant recipient, you have now become a real advocate for cancer awareness in the world. And I really want you to tell everyone about what you're up to. In the world. I love it. That's funny. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, where else my, would it be? <laughs> my, my, I thought you would say like in Connecticut or in Ohio, or <laughs> you're like in the world, <laughs> the world is this big space. <laughs> okay. <you know>? All right. <laughs> well, made me laugh. <laughs> I think you're doing some pretty great stuff. I love, well, thank you. I love it. Well, you know, um, my participation in advocacy started out kind of like a fluke. I wanted to go to call in Congress. I, I started Googling, you know, cancer, which don't ever do that. It's a horrible idea. <laughs> um, but I turned into WebMD myself. I ran across Fight CRC. It was too late to sign up, but I emailed them and asked them if I could get put on a waiting list or something, you know, and and I did. Someone that couldn't go actually let me have their space. And so I headed off to D.C. to learn about what this all meant, you know, cause I was searching at that point I'd gotten better. It was a year after transplant and I was like, gosh, there's gotta be something more purposeful for me to do with this. And so I, I was searching and I ended up at call on Congress and I just felt this pressing energy that I, that this is where I was meant to be. And, you know, I got fully engaged, started, you know, doing, advocacy stuff in different spaces and I applied to be in the colon club which is a yearly magazine that they do featuring 12 survivors and and I was chosen as one of the survivors which you know helped me elevate my platform a little bit and be able to get a little bit louder with my voice so just I've I've done a lot of stuff (laughs) I'm not sure exactly what you want me to share that I've done tell people about the colon congress what's that so the Colin Congress is a fight colorectal cancer event that they put on every year. And this year it was virtual because of COVID and the restrictions of health and the government. Um, Congress is pretty much locked down. Their building is their buildings are locked down. So we can't advocate in person. So we are doing a virtual event. But what Colin Congress is, is really it's an opportunity in the month of March for patients, advocates, survivors, care partners to come in and talk to Congress and talk to our representatives about the needs of colorectal cancer patients. Research from the DOD on down, it talks about, you know, you get to go face to face with your congressional leadership and say, this is the changes that we support. These are the changes that we need to make. We're very bipartisan, so you know we're we're usually greeted with with care right, and yeah, yeah. you know with with kindness, and so we were we we're able to get a lot of things um, worked on that wouldn't necessarily happen if it wasn't for this community coming together and really pushing for policy change. So we work on different things through different years. We just passed a house bill for a Medicare loophole that we were wanting, we've been working on it for like, oh, six or seven years to get enough signatures to get this to go to the Senate. There's a small loophole where if you are on Medicare and you have to have a colonoscopy, if you have a polyp when they do your colonoscopy, they have to bill you for it. Uh, or they have to wake you up in the middle of a colonoscopy and say, do you want me to take this polyp out? Oh, my goodness. Uh, which is ethically <laughs> not appropriate. Yeah. People that are on fixed incomes would not get their colonoscopies for the fear that they would incur this huge expense. Mm. And so we got that passed. So we're really, really proud about that 
passing, but it, they're all legislatively driven, which is really great. It's very powerful. And the Colon Club is survivorship. And so it's helped me really look at my opportunity and what I've been handed. And honestly, you know, I thought I was looking through it at, through a lens that it was, was clear, but this has really enabled me to like look at it through different lenses. And that's really helped me with the overall healing space and, and like plug in all the things that I needed to be able to, to be healthy for the long term, looking yeah. at survivorship long. Cause I didn't know at the beginning, at the forefront of this, I didn't know if I was going to live. Well, now I'm looking at, you know, five years. And so it looks a lot differently. And so, you know, I think you grow and that's really what the colon club has provided for me is that outlet of survivors that are like me that are young and thriving and, you know, we're early diagnosed and there's a reason that colon cancer is on the rise in young people. And so I'm really glad to be affiliated with that group of people. When I first started this, you know, I was thrust into a group of people that were, you know, wonderful people, but they were in their seventies and I was 42 and I had four kids and they didn't know what it looked like to be me. And I didn't know what it looked like to be them. And so it was so hard to, you know, understand. So being involved in these advocacy spaces has really given me the connections to people that are like me and I'm able to grow that way. And I've continued it through, you know, working with the Global Colorectal Cancer Association and their hereditary campaign. And I've done some work with Bayer and with Pfizer being on patient panels. And my story's out there. I, I purposefully, I, yeah. it's my mission to tell my story because I believe that we have to, we have to talk about it. We can't not talk about it. Talking about it means saving one person, and that's what I'm determined to do relentlessly. I love that you're, you know, people can receive, you know, screening and catch it early. People can use, uh, or, 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 you know, um, doctors can use, um, what's that called? Tell me, it's uh, is biomarkers, is that what it's called? So uh, for hereditary cancer or for tumor testing? For tumor testing. So there's a couple of different ways you could do testing, screening for, for colorectal cancer. There's, there's the colonoscopy, which is the tr traditional way. There are also less invasive things that you can do just to see if there's a chance that you should follow up with more care, which would be like a colonoscopy. There's the Cologuard and there's the fit test, things like that that look for acute blood in your stool, which would ultimately lead you to a conversation with your physician. I just did an event with the PGA where it was, we went to the Colovard Classic and they wrote a story on us about our journeys and my boyfriend's journey, Michael. And then it was emphasized about the Colovard because we can screen that way in a less invasive approach and, and save lives, right? While they're, you know, early diagnosed. Because yeah. if you can catch it early, you know, it's 90% preventable mm. um, if it doesn't get to a latent really? stage. That's uh, phenomenal. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah. So hereditary cancer is a big a big look these days because we've determined small subsets of patients can benefit from the knowing portion, right? So every cancer is genetic, but some cancers are hereditary, which means they're 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 um, passed through genes. Everybody gets two, and you can get one from your you get one from your mom and one from your dad and if there's a, a gene mutation you have 50% chance of getting that and that's what causes a hereditary a hereditary disposition to cancer and then there's also somatic cancers which we don't know why it could be environmental it could be you know something that you ate or drank we or carcinogens we don't know in my case i um, advocate in the hereditary cancer space because 
I have what's called JPS, it's juvenile polyposis syndrome. And it's a predisposition to colorectal cancer. Mm. My father had it, but since he passed away at an early age, we didn't know of a family history. Subsequently, since I was able to get genetic testing for the hereditary marker, we determined that my kids all have the same genetic marker for the cancer, for the hered- for the JPS. So we can save them. I always say, know it, screen it, beat it. If you know that you have a history of cancer, then you have to talk to your doctor and get screened at an early age, and then that's how you beat cancer. So ultimately, if we can look at hereditary pictures in early spaces, we can say you have a, a first-degree relative that could have that has a hereditary cancer. We can look at your first-degree um, relatives, and we can predetermine if they have that same marker um, through the hereditary markers. And we can say, you need to be screened earlier than 45. Right now, the, the age for screening is 45. But in a lot of cases, for first-degree family history, like my son, he had precancerous polyps at the age of 20. And if they would have waited until he was 45 to be screened, he would have had full-on stage four cancer. Right. So now they go in there, they remove those polyps, and they keep a real close eye on him. Yep. Okay, so that's what that provides. That's what I was going to ask you. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So the tumor marker, the tumor genetics, and the the tumor variant says look at your tumor itself, the tumor testing. So they're going to show things like if you're MS. S or MSI, which is microsatellite stable or or micro, or not, and then um, they're going to look at things like mutations, KRAS and BRAF and things like that that are in your tumor. So there's there's two ways of looking at genetic testing, and that's why I always say you need to have both sets. Most of the oncologists will definitely will will always do your tumor testing because that's what you need to know for treatment. But in in a greater look at your cancer, you can look at the genetics portion of your body, which is your DNA. You can look at it through hereditary or semantic, find out if you have any of the gene mutations. And then you can also do ctDNA. There's so many things that are going on to look at your tumor even deeper through simple approaches like blood tests and saliva uh, that can look at different markers in your in your blood that are still developing cancer cells and say maybe immunotherapy would work for you for something that you could you could do to to turn off something that's in your DNA it's pretty cool stuff that's going on so I'm a big advocate of knowing knowing your risk yeah 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 wow this episode's gonna it's gonna get a lot of play people are gonna be like oh, hey you need to listen to that you know it's beautiful they're, they're, they're gonna be saying take notes like go listen to this because there's <laughs> There's so much information out there that a lot of local hospitals that do standard of care, there's a lot of this that they don't do. They're not aware of it. It's not there yet. They don't have the funding. They don't have the manpower, the manpower. They don't have the the person power. They don't have the staff. Yeah. It's good. I like it that you mentioned that because tertiary care units are important. They're very valuable. But I think that sometimes we don't know and doctors don't know when we have reached a space where we need to consult deeper and and maybe uh, um, uh, higher level care when it comes to a position that we're in. This is our life we're talking about. This isn't just, you know, just, you know, for for the next baseball game. This is living. So I think that's really important to know when to play to the next space. And something that we're working on, um, a, some a few of us have teamed up and we've co-founded a group called Bloom. And it's a community built on access because I've recognized that 
I've been an exception to the rule. I've been provided this opportunity to have this great access to all sorts of opportunities in care, in wellness, in advocacy. And I realized looking back that there are so many disparities in health that people don't get the same access that I get or got or received, I should say. And so we've created Bloom with the idea that we need to provide access to patients right at diagnosis so that they can look and say, okay, I can do some of this treatment here, but if, in this instance, I need to seek out more care. I need to seek out more opinions. I need to seek out, you know, a holistic care space. I need, you know, to do, I need to be in a space where there's a multifaceted approach to the treatment a multidisciplinary team looking at my my overall treatment plan. Those are some things that are really important to know as as patients. And we think that with COVID and everything that has happened, we're missing the boat on engaging people in that space. And they're, they get behind the gun and they don't know what to do. And we want to help them with being able to provide that resource to them right when they're diagnosed. Carol, so. that's so important because <laughs> when a general oncologist says, you know, there's not much we can do here. I've spoken to multiple people who've said, yeah, then I went to a cancer hospital and they said, okay, we can work with this. And I've never understood why oncologists don't follow. There's not much we can do here with. And so we recommend you go to one of these three cancer hospitals. Like so many people tell me that those words never come out of their oncologist's mouths. And I'm like, why, why, why? So Bloom is just filling my heart because I'm like, (laughs) why? Do you know why? Because I mean, I have a lot of things to say about that, but I'm going to keep them internalized. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Going in my love department. Mm -hmm. But I, but I will say this. I think that when you are diagnosed, that it's very important and we don't, we don't get the opportunity to, to have this communicated to us. So we have to be able to provide the information in an indirect way to people, which is what we're doing with Bloom. And I think it's important for every patient to understand that an oncologist is different than a colorectal oncologist. When you have been diagnosed with a particular cancer, you need to seek out a specialized oncologist. Every oncologist is not the same. And that's okay. That's, you know, they're, I'm not, you know, I'm not discrediting oncologists. Oncologists Mm -hmm. are amazing humans. Absolutely. But some are specialists and some are general oncologists and, and, and they treat a multiple, uh, multiple cancers, breast cancer, you know, prostate cancer. When you have a specific cancer, you really need to be in a specific care overseeing your care. Maybe not your chemotherapy. You can use a general practitioner for treatment of your chemotherapy, but you really want to have a colorectal cancer specialist, specialty oncologist looking over and being the lead of your care. It's really important and it's very confusing. And so with Bloom, we want to help provide that access so that people can understand that better. The language is so hard to understand and I can't imagine it just hurts my heart uh, to know that people have to go through what I went through because we don't educate patients enough. We need to do better helping patients understand um, because we're in the journey of our lives. We're, we're fighting for our lives and we're smart. 
patients are smart now. Patients are mm-hmm. um, educated. We we don't just accept what the doctor says as you know as the end result. We we want to know more. We want to seek more opportunities and 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 more advanced therapies. And so we need to do better as a community to be able to provide those resources that we know that might not get given in an oncology setting. Let's face it, oncologists have a really hard job of administering the plan. So that's that's what they need to be doing. But there's also a psychosocial side that we really need to do better at being able to provide to the patients. Mm-hmm. And really that's what we've looked at for Bloom is we've said, hey, we recognize that oncologists need to have the time to focus on the clinical care of the patient, but we need to do better by providing the psychosocial element to them too, because they need both. Patients need both. Yeah, and we as patients are the advocate for ourselves. One of my very recent guests put it really well. Like the oncologist, that lead oncologist, they're the quarterback. But as the patient, you're the coach. They have all their wisdom, their knowledge, experience, but you then have to listen to them and make a choice and decide what works for you and what doesn't work for you and mm-hmm. and gather the additional information that they don't necessarily make available. Yep. And it can be overwhelming, but fortunately you don't have to do it all at once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I always tell my, my, you know, people that reach out to me for help and assistance. I always tell them, you can get 10 opinions. You, you're not obligated to, to take any of the opinions, you know, but, but, but the more information that you take in, and consider is is the better the outcome at the end. Whether you go back to the first space and decide that's the way you want to go, at least you have informed decisions and you have all the information that you can make that informed decision. Yeah, get so. multiple opinions. Absolutely. And we can do that through Bloom. That's what we're working to do. So tell everybody where they can find Bloom. Well, we are on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter under my bloom and we are soon launching our web space which is going to be my underscore bloom dot org how do you spell bloom and b-l-u-e-m nobody would get that one (laughs) why is it (laughs) spelled like that so blue is the color for colorectal cancer Mm -hmm. and bloom is what we hope to do by providing access to the patients We hope that we can cause them to bloom into new opportunities for engagement, whether it be through advocacy spaces, through new ways of treatment, through opening their world up to trials and a multitude of facets. The overall idea is just for them to to have a a life in full bloom. I love it. That's beautiful. I will be putting that on my resource page on my website. Well, likewise, we'll be talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will. And then so tell folks how they can learn about how they can get more information on the Colon Congress or the Colon Club because there are folks listening right now, you know there are and they're like let me let me say it like this. When I got diagnosed mm-hmm. and I stopped pretending and I started being the real me and I took on my diagnosis the same way, I discovered mm-hmm. that I had superpowers. I didn't realize how powerful a person I was. And I'm like, wow, I'm a powerhouse. My body did what my body did. But emotionally and mentally, I got through things I never would imagine myself getting through. And some things really took me out at the knees and it was hard to get back up. But like, 
I discovered powers I didn't know I had. And then I was like, how can I bring this to this world? Like I knew very early on that I wanted to transform the cultural conversation about cancer Mm because all I heard was fear and dread. A friend of mine got diagnosed Mm -hmm. and when I stopped seeing her, stopped bumping into her at the same organization we were meeting at, Mm-hmm. I stopped showing up in her life until she called me. She's like, where are you? I have cancer. And I burst into tears. I'm like, Mary, I was scared to death. You're going to die. And I freaked out. She's like, well, I'm not dead. Like, when are we getting mm-hmm. together? You know? Mm-hmm. And, it, and so when I got diagnosed and she called me and, and coached me through some of it, it had me very early on realize like, wow, I had this idea of cancer that terrified me. And like, mm-hmm. what if we don't have that approach? What if we acknowledge, yeah, it's a dangerous disease and it's scary but it's not what people make it out to be. Lots of people get through it and it's hard, but it's mm-hmm. not a death sentence. Oh my and, gosh, you said my exact words that I always say, cancer is not a death sentence. Oh. You know, people at a very young age are living and functioning. And honestly, I want a cure to cancer, 100%. But more importantly than that, I wanna learn, I want us to be able to learn how to manage it because we know people are gonna get cancer. Ultimately, we can't stop that from happening. Hopefully someday we can by giving them something. But I want people to know that we are living. I don't have one foot in the ground. You know, people like you, like you said, I think I was like Cancer Carol in, you know, my community because people were just waiting for the next bad thing to happen. And, and they thought I was, you know, one foot in the ground already. And here I was living life and functioning, climbing mountains. And I think, like you said, there's a stigma that you know, you're, you know, it's awful and terrible, but I want people to see the beauty and what it can create because it is beautiful. And I know that that sounds ridiculous. Um, and I don't want to discredit cancer because it is hard. And I don't want people that listen to here to say, well, that, you know, you're ridiculous. Cancer is horrible. It's horrible. They are, you are a hundred percent right. But I want to teach people how we can take that horrible and create it into beautiful um, by learning that we can still live life and manage it. And that comes to making pe- making sure people can live a full lives with cancer. Yeah, as you get into it, like what you're saying is like cancer is horrible. But for most of us, when we get diagnosed, the initial horrible also includes our uninformed imaginative minds. Oh, 100%. I d- to agree completely. And there are some people who are like, you know, I saw, I've seen some really great posts on social media lately with folks saying like, hey, you have cancer, you don't have to be a hero. You don't have to be a rock star. And that's equally valuable. Like for some folks, it's like, look, I don't have what it takes to be impressing the hell out of everybody. It's like, well, you want to know what? When people start telling you what an inspiration you are, that can become a burden because then you don't want to let people down. And then all of a sudden you don't want to be the human you. I had that experience. Mm-hmm. I bet you had something similar where it's like, wait a second, what am I doing here? No, I'm having a tough day. Like I'm not, I'm not inspiring yeah. anyone right now or this week or this month or whatever. Like this is hard. I think what you said was really important, the word today. And I always follow that, that sentence up. Like this is hard today mm-hmm. because I will sit in today and I don't bring tomorrow's worries today. I do today. And then tomorrow I might be brave again. Um, and then you can tell me I'm brave. But today I'm not brave. And I think it's okay to, you know, to say today I'm not brave. It's beautiful. And then the next day I am brave today. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I've been getting really intimately related with the chicken little part of my mind where the sky is falling. When I'm having yeah. a rough couple of hours, my mind only sees my whole life that way. And I'm... Yeah 
old enough now where I've seen this pattern. It's like, oh, you again. Uh-huh. Yeah, you that want to tell me <laughs> that this is my whole life, my whole world, my entire future, forever and ever the end. It's like, no. It's actually been three hours. <laughs> or, or it's actually been one day. But my mind really loves to just pump the drama up and get me all worked up. And yeah. You know, it's yeah. something else that I want to say that I really love. It's like, I have a friend named Chuck. I love the guy. He's so great. And I had cancer twice. And I was telling him how I don't feel like that strong a person. And this relates to you as well. And he looks at me with this kind of quizzical look in his face. He's like, dude, I think you're actually pretty tough to take down. <laughs> and it stopped me in my tracks. I was like, huh, you want to know what? <laughs> and, you know, that very much applies to you, Carol. Like you've had organs. You have organs uh -huh. be like, no, I'm out. You know, see ya. I'm done. And your body just kept kicking and your mind and your spirit. It's beautiful and inspiring. Thank absolutely. You. Absolutely. Thank you. I think we're all resilient and we're all brave and we're all strong in our own ways. And, you know, I just think we have to sit back and, and, and enjoy that about our lives, you know, and, you know, and I think that it, I think when someone says you're brave, I, I do a lot of times say, oh no, it's just who I am. I mean, it's just what you do, which is true. But I also think that I, I still, you know, say thank you because for me that when they, when someone tells me I'm brave and courageous, I think what they're saying in their own minds is you and you have encouraged me through your bravery. And so I think that if you don't say thank you, then I, you know, I don't feel like I'm brave, certainly a, a lot of days, but I think to hear someone say that we, we have to say, Oh, you know, well, I'm really not because I'm not, but, but thank you for that because to them, it turns back to them, keep going, you know, be courageous like her, even though she doesn't think she's super courageous, <laughs> you know, keep pushing ahead because you yourself have set an example to them that you are courageous. And That's so well put. That's so well put. It's about inspiring people, you know, I think that's yes. what our lives are meant to do. Like, what would we, like, what's the, what's the legacy? You know, I, I think about that a lot. Mm -hmm. Maybe you do too. I think about legacy. You know, I lately have been really struggling with who I know I'm capable of being and mm -hmm. how I show up and the gap in between. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yesterday I had dinner with a friend in my pod and she has uh, multiple myeloma. And as she's being told, you know, treatment's going to have to start soon. She said to me last night, I would rather die than live without purpose. Mm -hmm. And it went straight to my heart because, yeah, like I can entertain myself. I'm a musician. I'm a songwriter. I'm a glass blower. I, I do lots of things. But if I'm not being a contribution to this world, it's just how I'm wired. Then I just don't want to do it. Some folks, they don't have that in them. They're, they, don't, they don't feel so compelled. They're a contribution by simply being. You know what I mean? They're, they're the person you bump into and just like, it just changes your day, you know? But then there's those of us who just feel really, just are just wired to, to want to be a contribution. And uh, I think you, you said it very well. I think purpose changes through our lives. And I, I often thought, 
when I was younger that you know you had to have a purpose, one purpose, that was it. But then hmm. I realized through the years that, you know, through my um, seasons of my life, you know, children and, you know, um, career and things like that, I realized that that purpose changes. And, and to have one solid purpose is, is in my opinion, is, is serving God. Um, that's my huge purpose. And then I have missions along the way. And who would have thought that at this stage in my life, um, cancer as bad as it is, would given me, would give me this amazing mission to help others and serve in such an amazing way to pass on hope and love and determination and just encouragement to keep uh, putting one foot in front of the other to live beautifully during this, this circumstance that you're in. I'm very grateful and, and in, I have so much gratitude for what cancer has given me in that space so i thank it every day amazingly enough for that yeah yeah well that's beautiful it has uh been such a treat to have this conversation with you Aww. yeah likewise i hope there's more <laughs> me too i think there will be i feel uh real connected to you i think we have a very similar uh outlook we we, we took mm -hmm. on similar approaches i mean i never like went to Congress and spoke like I think that's amazing I spent most of my life being way too scared feeling way too unworthy of that kind of stuff now if you said Bert you want to go do that I'd be like if I can fit it in my schedule yep but so you know you really you really inspire me I, I, I took some uh, some beautiful things from this conversation too I want you to know that wanna like oh, you really had me you. you know notice like no, I'm not telling anyone to be thankful for the day they are diagnosed because there are some of you who are listening to this right now. You're like, you're out of your damn mind. <laughs> yep. But but for me, that was a missing piece for me, Carol, and, and, and you brought that to mm -hmm. me. And I don't come to this podcast and deliver it to be an authority on anything. I'm real curious, and all I have is my experience to share. I have lots of questions and lots of curiosity and lots of passion, but I come here to learn like everybody else because every one of you has something to teach me. And... Uh, on well, us conversations are meant for that indeed indeed mm -hmm. so you have a beautiful day thank you for having me oh you're so welcome i'm sure we'll <laughs> talk soon yes okay bye-bye bye-bye follow bloom on instagram facebook and twitter at my underscore bloom spelled b-l-u-e-m thank you so much for tuning in i truly hope this podcast was of value to you Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find Butt Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. If you'd like to support Butt Seriously, the Cancer Podcast to ensure we continue to provide the best quality episodes for our listeners around the world, please go to our Patreon page at Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast see you all in the next episode and thank you so much for listening the intro and outro music you hear is the creation of saint kid you can find him on social media as the saint kid the purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis the hosting guests are not medical professionals and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health please consult a qualified medical professional